All right. Well, it's an honor to be able to speak to you guys. Um, I had a moment of panic a few hours ago. I was letting my wife read through my message for tonight, which you should do when you're about to speak on marriage. It's a good idea to let your wife read what you're going to say, especially if you're going to tell any stories about your own marriage. And, um, and so Stacy said, um, well, did you look at your last message that you gave to the men on marriage? And I thought, what message? And I, so she said, like, a year or so ago, you did another men's meeting on the topic of marriage. Are you saying all the same things? Are you saying something different? And I totally forgot about that. And so I looked up, yep, it's three years ago, pretty much today, that we had a men's meeting. And I spoke on marriage. And so... She said, maybe it's an honor that I get asked to speak again, but I thought maybe I just needed to work through some more stuff, and so that way I get to speak again on the topic. Um, so my topic is, is a little more specific than it was last time. It's not just building up our marriages, but in fact, growing in relational intimacy is my topic for tonight. Now, there may be many different views on how to have a successful marriage, um, so the Wall Street Journal, I saw an article this last week, and uh, this, this, is the t- this is the title of the Wall Street Journal article, The Trick to a Great Marriage, Vacation Without Your Partner. <laughs> and so the whole article is about, so the subhead, together in marriage, solo in travel, more couples go on vacation alone. Now... That's a strange way to think about a successful marriage of, of vacationing by yourself. And we'll talk about that as we go on like, why might somebody say that? But if we were to ask one another to describe what we mean by a great marriage, we might say things, none of us would say this, so I'm going to give a lot of false answers first. Is it one that looks good on social media? Does that make a great marriage? Well, no. Is it one that looks good in public? Is it one that seems easy with very little conflict? Where both spouses agree on most things? Is it great because you make it to death without parting? Is it great because both spouses share similar interests and goals? Is it Is it measured by the frequency and satisfaction of sex? Is it a relationship marked by um, being understood? You have shared expectations about, you know, hobbies and in-laws and vacations. Is it measured to the extent to which each spouse helps the other meet his or her goals? Is it measured by a feeling of fulfillment or a lack of loneliness? None of those by themselves, to me, give a great answer for what a great marriage is. So let's change the question slightly. How would you describe a God-honoring marriage? Is it God-honoring just because we have a sense of male leadership and the wife's submission? Does that make it God-honoring? Is it measured by the rearing of God-fearing children? Is it God-honoring merely because uh, the spouse's remain sexually faithful to one another for the duration of the marriage? Is that what makes a God-honoring marriage? And though all those things are, a lot of those things are good, 
and some of them are necessary, I don't think they define great or God-honoring marriage without two crucial elements that are missing from those descriptions. And the first of those elements is purpose. What is the purpose to which your marriage is aimed? What are you aiming at with your marriage? We might call that purpose or direction. And then the second missing element is kind of this often overlooked part of the pathway to fulfilling that purpose. So let's speak to purpose for just a second. Um, and then we'll talk about the duration of this message, this pathway to get there. But, but for the purpose itself, we've been in Genesis for the last uh, couple of months, and we've been talking about a lot about the, the first marriage, Adam and Eve, and the purpose in marriage there. But I might, I might summarize our, uh, the purpose of marriage like this. Our marriages should be in the service of God's purposes in the earth. Okay, our marriage should be in the service of God's purposes in the earth. God gave Adam a helper, Eve, to help him for the job that God gave Adam to do. We saw that in the great, uh, the creation mandate in Genesis 1. God said, let us make man in our image. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. So here in the goodness of God's creation, the perfection and goodness of God's creation, he gave this creation mandate. But then there was something that was not good, and it was that Adam was alone in Genesis 2.18. The Lord said, it is not good that man should be alone, but I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, I've, I probably spoke about this three years ago, so I may be repeating myself, but God didn't say here that Adam was lonely, and that was the problem. He wasn't, Adam wasn't just in need of a companion. Adam was in need of a helper, someone to help him fulfill what God had called him to do. And this was Eve. Eve's primary, dis primary description here is not one of companionship, though she is that, but one of helper. And this helper is not because Adam was incompetent. It was because he had, a, he had the need of a wife and the fruit of their marriage to accomplish what God had called him to do. So we get this summary statement at the end of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So the first purpose we need to keep in mind from the very beginning was the fundamental ordering of society based on the family, based on marriage. Our marriages should be in the service of God. And so this is the main orienting principle that will steer us in the right direction in our marriages. Our marriages are not primarily about our happiness or even giving happiness to our spouse, but the primary service of marriage is Godward. We need to fulfill God's purposes in the earth. This includes all aspects of our marriage. All parts, our one fleshness, our being fruitful and multiplying, our discipling our children and ministering to others is all a fruit of, of God's work in our marriage for the sake of, of him and his kingdom. 
our creativity and ordering of society and the service of God is all part of our purpose for marriage. But marriage also serves as a picture. We're familiar with this in in Ephesians chapter 5, that Paul tells us men to love our wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And we see verses like this in Isaiah 62. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Just think of that picture for a minute. As the bridegroom, as you rejoice over your bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And that's, that's actually kind of a picture of of intimacy in marriage and God saying, as wonderful as that is, God rejoices over you. And so the the closeness and relationship that we have in marriage is something that is a picture of God's closeness and his joyful exuberance in his relational closeness to his bride, his children. So this pictures how God relates to us. And marriage shows forth the covenant faithfulness of God and his relationship to his people in profound ways. Isaiah 54, 5, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Your maker is your husband. The one that that loves us and cares for us is the one who made us and the one who knows us and the one who gives his covenant faithfulness toward us. So perhaps we should ask the question, why would God use marriage as a picture of his relationship to his people? And that's just a great question. Like, there's so many intricacies and challenges and, and layers to the marriage relationship, and yet God often uses that as a picture of his relationship to his people. The depth, the layers of care and protection and concern and knowing and loving and sacrificing are all there in that picture. What are my aims tonight? So my aims are to speak to those who are married and those who are not married. So hopefully that captures everybody here. Uh, Maybe particularly I have in mind tonight some of you who are married or have been married uh, for a little while and you've established routines and expectations in your marriage. You've you've kind of figured out how how this marriage thing works. We've kind of worked through uh, the basic things. So your marriage is basically functioning and yet it may not be growing in intimacy with your spouse. You may even be at the point where you've said, I guess this is just how things are going to be. Now, I'm also speaking to young men interested in preparing for marriage, and hopefully this will help you to be proactive in working in those skills that will bless your future spouse. But we want to talk tonight about being known in relational intimacy. So, uh, Ever since we, we announced the title of this talk, I've gotten questions, so is this talk about sex? And this is not just going to be about the sexual relationship in marriage, not even primarily so, although we will address that a little bit, um, because those two things are very connected. But my, na- my aim tonight is that we would renew our efforts to pursue relational intimacy with our, within our marriages, and that we would be purposeful and humble and open to how we can better portray 
the faithfulness and love of our God towards us in how we love our wife. So I don't stand up here as an expert. In fact, there are no experts in the room for this particular talk. There's, there are only people who are seeking to grow in how they can love and cherish their wife. But I do have some earned experience and I've learned a lot from other people. And so Stacy and I are in our 27th year together, praise the Lord. And, um, and it's, been, it's been a wonderful journey and I'll tell some, some of my journey along the way tonight. Um, so remember, there are two things not to lose sight of. One is we have to keep the purpose of marriage in mind. The other is that our pursuit of relational intimacy in marriage is to better portray God's care and love for us. Let's pray again. God, we do need your help. We've already sung that we need you. And God, I'm, I'm just aware, even as I stand up here to speak to my brothers in the Lord that I need you, that I've not at all arrived in this topic, that I have much to learn, that I look forward to growing and uh, being changed by you so that I love my wife more, that I'm eager tonight to walk alongside my brothers as we seek to be husbands that portray Christ's love for his church. Lord, help me to speak clearly and truthfully from your word. And I do pray that you, would, that you would protect us from any error tonight. Protect me as I speak. Protect us as we listen. That you'd protect us from any errors and how, or, or um, any way that this might be distorted in how we would apply it in our marriages. So Lord, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so number one, we are called to relational intimacy. We are called to relational intimacy. Now, in my own experience, there have been seasons in my own marriage where things felt a bit more roommate-ish than marriage-ish. Or maybe they felt more like fellow travelers than husband and wife. And I don't mean by that that those seasons were seasons where we weren't physically involved together or romantically involved together. I just mean that the day-to-day life didn't feel like husband and wife. It felt like we're just kind of living life together. Um, We could go through long stretches of doing things together or doing things apart where we're sharing goals like raising our kids, but largely missing out on the richness, the richness, the depth, the beauty of our relationship to one another. I'm sure this can look different within different marriages, but for us, we could go long stretches without conflict, without drama, and therefore, very easily, we could drift into just kind of living like roommates, just doing the things together. And there are seasons in life where that just that's just how marriage looks. You're in the middle of raising a bunch of young kids and and that's, that's part of one of those seasons. But what I'd like to call us to tonight is there's, there should be renewals after those kinds of seasons of growing relationally in intimacy with your spouse. So I'm going to point us to a few passages uh, in the pursuit of relational intimacy. So first, uh, Genesis chapter 4, 
Uh, We've been in Genesis for quite a while, so I have a few things to say from Genesis tonight. Um, This is a really, it's it's almost treated like a throwaway verse here in Genesis chapter 4, because we get on to other things. But Genesis 4.1 says this, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Now, it's obvious that this verse is actually referring to uh, Adam and Eve having sexual relations and Cain being conceived. However, what's not so obvious is why God would use the word Adam knew his wife. Now, we, we're used to that kind of language, but it's not obvious. It's not obvious why God would use that. Adam knew Eve. There are other ways the Bible uses to talk about this. In 2 Samuel, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. So the Bible has other ways, lay with, go into, to, to talk about this act. And yet, right here in the very beginning, it's Adam knew Eve. Adam knew Eve. To know, to refer to this act of sexual intimacy three different times in this chapter. Verse 1, verse 17, verse 25, Adam knew. That, that, should, that should pique our interest about something important here. Uh, one commentator says this, The use of the word new for sexual relations conveys the biblical idea of sexual love Far from the erotic indulgence practiced by the world, it conveys the idea of personal, intimate relationship and awareness of God's purpose. Notice that the text adds his wife to Eve, reinforcing God's design for sex only within marriage. Adam knew his wife. The Hebrew word here is yada, and it's used a bunch, a bunch in the Old Testament. Um, And it points to knowledge through personal experience, not just intellectual understanding. So Adam knew his wife. My point isn't to say that the only way to know your wife is to know her physically, but that there is something in this language that points to the closeness, the oneness, the vulnerability in our marriage. To see this word used in in a slightly different way, uh, you could look at Psalm 139. I just picked out a few verses. So Psalm 39, one and two. Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse four, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Verse 23, search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart, try me, and know my thoughts. So just hear the echoes here on what we mean by Adam knew his wife. We're asking that God would know us in these ways. I mean, Psalm 139 is so, it's so personal. It's so relational in God knowing us. This invitation for how God knows us, how deeply he knows us. And how that works itself out in his care for us. Now we'll talk more about the physical side of knowing a bit later. But at this point, just consider the significance 
of this deep personal knowledge of another. How, how well do you know your wife? Is this knowledge growing? Is it, is it just a knowledge, is it a knowledge that's merely accidental or through a pursuit? And do you embrace this pursuit to know her, to know her more deeply than any other person? This isn't just knowing facts about a person. Um, I'm still learning a lot of facts about my wife's history, just as she's learning about mine. We'll occasionally tell stories and think, I, I've never heard that before. I didn't know you lived there. I don't remember you talking about that friend before. But that's not the kind of knowledge I'm talking, that, that's, that's not the extent of the kind of knowledge I'm talking about. I'm talking about the deeper knowing about thoughts, anxieties, joys, insecurities, hopes, and disappointments. How well do you know your wife? This kind of knowledge takes time and curiosity and care and trust. So Adam knew his wife. And don't just limit that to the creation of Cain. See that as a, as a picture of a, a breadth of knowing his wife. Another passage we might consider would come from Proverbs 31. Now, think Proverbs 31. That's, that's the passage that we preach to the, to the wives, not to the husbands. But there's a really interesting phrase here in Proverbs 31, 10 and 11, 10 through 12. It says this, an excellent wife who can find. She is more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. So not only does a husband need to be a careful student of his wife, he also needs to be vulnerable and trusting of her. This, this passage in Proverbs is pointing to, our, to the characteristics of a wife who fears the Lord but the embedded idea here is it's a clue to how a husband should relate to his wife. I still have the New King James in my head here. It's what slips off my tongue. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. The heart of her husband safely trusts in her. This isn't time for the husband to be the Lone Ranger tough guy nor a call for him to carry whatever burdens, trials, joys that he himself has by himself. In Proverbs 31, the husband safely trusts in her. I really appreciate how one of my brothers here uh, shared with me yesterday regarding relational intimacy. He, he said that our wives are often asking two questions. Do I know my husband? And is my husband allowing himself to be known? Do I know my husband? And is my husband allowing himself to be known? Now, some of you are saying, of course my wife knows me. I mean, we've been together for 27 years. Of course she knows me. This is, this is a deeper question than that. This is, this is more than we've, she knows that I like chocolate ice cream. Or she knows that I don't like being around crowds of people. Like this is, this, do I know my husband? Are there things about him that are being hidden from me or 
or he doesn't share with me or that I don't understand about the deeper parts of what's going on in his heart. So our wives could be asking these questions. Do I, do I, really, do I really know John? Is he allowing himself to be known? In other words, is, is his heart safely trusting in me? Again, I'm not just talking about your history. Like, does my wife know me? Does she know that I played baseball through the sixth grade and that I wasn't very good at it? Like, she does know that, by the way. And she said, yeah, I, I knew that. And <laughs> it's more along the veins of, does my wife know that I'm still pretty self-conscious when I play sports and afraid of failing in front of other people? Like, that's my wife knowing me. It's not just that I play baseball. Like, does she know how my past impacts my present? Does she know things that are going on in my heart? I'm not saying that men need to all of a sudden become more emotional and more dramatic. What I'm saying is that we have inner thoughts, men, that include fears, failures, hopes, dreams, disappointments, joys that we should be sharing with our wives. And this is part of us safely trusting in her. Now there's risk. There's risk in letting our wives know us in this way. One of those, one author that I read said it this way, being known is terrifying. There is no such thing as risk-free yada, risk-free knowledge. You see, when we let ourselves be known, there's risk involved. Now, some of you are, are thinking, now, John, I'm called to be a protector and provider, and I need to do that without showing my wife weaknesses and failures. And yes, we are called to lead and protect and provide for our wife, but we're also called to tr let our heart trust in her. And then some others of us are thinking, John, what are you talking about? All this emotional, deeper stuff, like you know, um, I just like staying on the surface. Who's in the big game this weekend? Um, what are the current dangers in the economy I should avoid? Uh, the disheartening state of politics. Like maybe you just want to stay there. Or maybe you, you do share complaints about your work with your wife. But that's about as deep as the heart level goes. But I think, men, that we're called to share our spiritual realities what's going on in our lives with our spouse more than with anyone else. This is a good opportunity for us to grow together. Yet more of us are thinking, ah, but John, my wife is not the Proverbs 31 woman. You know, none of our wives are the Proverbs 31 woman. Some of you are thinking, my wife isn't going to do me good and not harm all the days of my life if I share everything that I'm thinking and wrestling through. Maybe she'll laugh at me. Maybe she'll criticize me or mock me. Maybe I'll lose some respect in her eyes. But friends, we need to grow relationally with our spouse. And that's going to require vulnerability on our part. So allow yourself to be known. Another passage we might look at, uh, 1 
Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor as to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Thankfully, this is not a call for you to understand all women. This is a call for you to understand your wife and live with her in an understanding way. It requires careful, carefully researched, a carefully researched and collected body of knowledge to know how is this situation going to impact my wife and how I'm going to care for her and love her through this particular situation. How might my particular sins affect her? How can I use this specific knowledge about my spouse to help honor her and do good to her? Or will I use that knowledge to criticize her and not care for her as I should? Will we treat our wives in a demeaning way because we really understand her? We really know some of her weaknesses or frailties or sins. Will I use that knowledge against her or will I use that knowledge to dwell with my wife in an understanding way because we are heirs together of the grace of life. See that we're, we're fellow heirs together with our wives in the kingdom of God. And we need to understand them and dwell with them in an understanding way. Now, some of you younger husbands, um, this verse is a real challenge. Like, dwell with your wife in an understanding way. You've got a lot to learn about your spouse. And so the temptation for some of the younger guys is, uh, there's a lot I don't know, right? Well, you've got to work hard. You've got to work hard to, to seek to understand not just how your wife behaves, but what's, what's, what are the operating things in her life and in her heart and in her mind and in her emotions that affect her. Now, for the older guys... It may be less, I don't have any idea like how to understand my wife, but perhaps through my understanding and through my history, I've grown, I've grown calloused to what my wife needs or indifferent to really treating her in an understanding way. One of the challenges of, of 1 Peter 3, 7 is... Um, is we change. We change. Our spouse changes. Stacy and I joke together that we're not married to the same person that we were from 27 years ago. Like that person that I stood across the across next to in the aisle and gave my vows, I'm not really married to the same person anymore. And she's not married to the same person anymore because we've both changed a lot over the years and how we respond in 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 our weaknesses, in our strengths. And so one of the challenges for us as men is to not, not be ensconced in our view of what our wife is like, but to continue to be curious, to continue to allow that a person changes over time. And sometimes those changes are God's work of sanctification in her life. And sometimes those changes are new weaknesses that come up in a new season. And we have to be patient and understanding in how we love them. 
It's very tempting to become stagnant in our relationship because we, we just don't allow the other person to change. But that's not how marriage works. It's not how relationships work. And finally, one more argument that we should pursue relational intimacy is from Ephesians chapter five. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. So friends, in order to nourish and in order to cherish our wives, we need to know them. We need to grow in our knowledge of them. We need to allow ourselves to be known and understood. We need to be vulnerable with them. There is a knowledge in this passage of weakness and failures in Ephesians 5 that reminds us of God's washing and God's sanctification in our lives. And as husbands, we are called to know our wives in the same way, to act redemptively and lovingly toward them. Well, next, I'd like to look at some of the hurdles to relational intimacy. So I'm trying to make the appeal to us tonight that as men, we need to grow in our pursuit of a deeper relational intimacy with our spouse. But there are hurdles that get in the way that make this hard. By no means am I suggesting that this is an easy task. On the contrary, it is quite challenging at times and complicated. And I wonder if it would have even been challenging for Adam and Eve apart from sin. Like, would it have been challenging for them to really understand the other person? I don't think it's just automatic that without sin, they would have totally understood each other. And yet sin came in, and now it's no longer just challenging, but complicated. Complicated. It's been complicated by sin, and now because of sin, it involves risk and sacrifice. So I'd like, to, I'd like to consider a few hurdles. Now, hurdles may be the wrong image because what do, we, what do we do with hurdles? We put hurdles up on the track to make the race more interesting, right? Or more challenging. That's not really what I mean when I talk about hurdles to relational intimacy. I mean more like stumbling blocks, which is what a hurdle would be to me. It would not make the race more interesting or challenging for me to try to run over hurdles. It would, it would be a stumbling block. I would be on the ground. So what are, some of these, what are some of these hurdles or stumbling blocks? Well, the first would be shame. Shame. So if you're still in Genesis, in chapter 3, verse 7, like right after the first sin, this is what it says. Their eyes, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Just consider the immediate, the immediate effects 
of sin for Adam and Eve. They knew that they were naked and they hid themselves from one another through the loincloths and from God by hiding in the garden. They knew that they were naked. They hid themselves from one another out of shame and they hid themselves from God. So immediately after the first sin, shame enters the picture and shame hinders their relationship with one another and shame hinders their relationship with their loving heavenly father. In verse 10, in response to God's questions, Adam says this, he says, I was afraid. I was afraid. Shame can become a stumbling block to our intimacy relationally with our spouse and with God. So don't be, don't be surprised when our sins and failures tempt us to hide from one another and to hide from God. But that is not the path of redemption and love. In 1 John, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the kind of Yada, knowing that we are talking about, includes understanding one another's sins, failures, and shame. But it also preaches the gospel to one another. The gospel that says if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So friends, shame is right there. Shame wants to keep you from being relationally intimate with your wife. Shame over things that you've done. Shame over things that would impact your relationship to her. Shame over your lack of spiritual leadership. It could be shame for things that are sins and shame for things that aren't. But don't let, don't let that keep you from growing in a deeper Relational intimacy with your wife. Second, not just shame, but a lack of vulnerability. So I've already kind of talked about this, but if not met with faith and confession and repentance, then our shame leads us to limit our vulnerability to our spouse. To be clear, I'm not saying that we must confess every sin to every person that we meet. That's not what I'm saying. But our sins affect our spouse more deeply than any other person. And so are we going to allow shame to put a barrier, a wall up between my, my knowledge of and her knowledge, my knowledge of my wife and her knowledge of me? Remember our question, do I know my husband and is he allowing himself to be known? Shame can lead us to a lack of vulnerability. Now, the impulse that we often have is, is I'm going to get fixed first, right? I'm going to fix the problem. Then we can talk about it in hindsight. But the problem, friends, is often that, that just does not lead to, that does not lead 
to the right path. Often we need to, we need to be honest. Now maybe the first person to talk about a sin with is not your wife, but we do need to be vulnerable with our spouse. If unchecked, that, vulner- that lack of vulnerability then leads to dishonesty. Now, this could be outright lying about something, or it could be presenting a picture that is misrepresenting what's true, right? It's misleading. Now, of course, pornography comes to mind when I'm talking about these subjects, but by no means do I believe it's the only area of sin and dishonesty that can have significant effects on our wives. So beware, beware of the temptation to hide something from your wife so that it paints you in a better picture. Perhaps the situation needs, needs wisdom to know how to talk about it, but beware of the temptation to be dishonest. Because if you, if you said what was really going on, then maybe you would be inviting her criticism or concern or confrontation. Now, there may be areas of disagreement that you have with your wife, and you just don't want to keep bringing up the disagreement. For instance, your wife may think smoking cigars is wrong. And you may think smoking cigars is just fine. So to avoid confrontation, you hide, you attempt to hide when you've smoked. Now this is not the recipe for unity in your marriage. Now is is smoking the cigar right or wrong? it, It doesn't matter in this picture, right? What matters is when we hide things from our spouse, that does not lead to relational intimacy. So we've got, we've got uh, shame, lack of vulnerability, dishonesty. But then there's, there's this whole other side of a different hurdle to our relational intimacy, which could simply be not giving time and attention to developing your marital relationship together. It's, it's quite easy to fill your schedule with work and church activities and kids' activities and hobbies so that you actually don't have much time left to develop relationally with your spouse. And so your relational intimacy just shrivels for lack of attention and lack of, um, lack of purpose. And Sometimes life just comes in on us and and makes that more difficult. But sometimes it's actually intentional by one of the spouses to mask relational difficulties. So we, we put more distance and spend less time and avoid those conversations because they're difficult and it creates more distance and more disinterest in the parties. Resist this, friend. Resist this. It is possible that over time, your interests and your wife's interests are going to grow farther apart instead of growing closer together. Your young married years, you're having kids, you're doing things with the kids together, your life revolves a lot around the family, and then as you grow older, your interests go in different places, and, and eventually the secret to a good marriage is vacationing solo, Right? No, that, that's, that's, not, that's not a good solution. But, but we should be aware that sometimes our interests are going to go in different directions. And so as leaders in our homes, we have to be intentional to pursue our wives relationally. 
you know, speaking of doing things separately, my wife has informed me that it's fine for me to take the kids camping without her. Like she's, she's okay with that. She's okay with that now. And, um, and maybe, maybe that's a good idea. Maybe that will help our marital relations if I don't take her camping when it's cold or something. But, but as a matter of priority and relational intimacy, we should be looking for ways to share life together, to build into one another, to pursue deeper knowledge and love for one another. So how do we overcome these hurdles, these stumbling blocks? Well, two big ideas I think help us. One is remember that this is a covenanted, this is a covenant relationship. Marriage isn't just any relationship, it is a covenant. There, are, there is a reason that we make vows to one another in sickness and in health, for richer, for poor, until death us do part. There's a reason we make those promises and it, and it helps us focus and bring us back together to pursue our wives. So there are things we can do to add to or take away the sense of safety in our relationship on how we share and how much we share. But fundamentally, we start with this is a covenant. We have covenanted together to bear with one another through all things. That should help us in times of difficulty or disappointment. And now there are acts of unfaithfulness that can even break those marriage vows. And that's a conversation for another day. But for now, just realize that your covenant faithfulness to your spouse means that you have a greater obligation to overlook and to forgive and also greater obligation to be honest and vulnerable than with any other person in the world. We're covenant with our spouse. We're in covenant with our spouse. Also, we're gospel people. Not only is this a covenant relationship, but we're a gospel-loving people. None of our marriages survives because we've executed them perfectly. But by God's grace, through our weaknesses and our sins, God When we humble ourselves and come before him, he blesses us, offers forgiveness and grace to us. Such were some of you, Paul says, but you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the spirit of our God. So we need to beware of those hurdles. And finally, uh, let me speak to the role of sex in relational intimacy. So like I said, ever since we published this talk, I've gotten various questions about what am I going to say about sex in marriage? And um, like I said, these things are connected. And I do want to make some statements and point us to a few passages. And we'll have some time for praying for one another. First, sex is not optional in your marriage relationship. Sex is not optional. Now, we need to note that that marriage is the only appropriate context for sexual intimacy. It it, it belongs exclusively within the covenant relationship. Just think about that. The fact that we've made promises to one another is what makes the sexual intimacy not only right, but commanded. It's not just allowed. It's, It's part of the covenant. It's commanded. 1 Corinthians 7 Typical place we would go to say this, but the husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement 
for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's, it's almost like Paul said, for a time, stop devoting yourselves to sexual intimacy and devote yourselves to prayer. And then come back and devote yourselves to sexual intimacy, right? For a time, you can do that. But, but the normal state of marriage is one that includes sexual intimacy. In God's wisdom, he prescribed that the physical relationship that most expresses naked and not ashamed and one flesh and this beauty that he intended for mankind to experience exclusively in marriage, this is in sexual intimacy within our marriages. And it should be regular and it should be a blessing to both husband and wife. It's not just allowed, it's commanded. That was a practical but significant matter. Paul did not write these words so that a husband can demand or guilt his wife into having sex with him. So yes, avoiding sex for an extended time should be an agreed upon thing by both parties. Let your goal be to bless your wife. But guys, just, just don't, you, don't read this verse to your wife to, to make her have sex with you. That's bad. Don't do it. If I hear about it, I'm going to get in your business. Don't do that. See this verse as a, as a way to bless your spouse. <clears throat> so, intimacy is not optional. Second, intimacy is not automatic. We began by looking at Genesis 4.1, Adam knew Eve, implying that he didn't just make a baby, but he made some relational connection. But one of the errors that we can tend to make is assuming that sexual activity automatically means relational intimacy. That sexual activity equals relational intimacy. And friends, it's, it's not that automatic. The physical relationship indeed can be a great help to the relationship in expressing or leading to relational intimacy. But it is possible to approach sexuality in a mere physical way that does not arise out of or lead to relational intimacy. Now, stereotypically, this is the approach often taken by the husband, leaving wives feeling used instead of loved. And women, on the other hand, stereotypically want physical intimacy to arise out of an emotional connection first. But the thing for us to remember is that knowing, if we just use knowing in the sense of Genesis 4.1, knowing physically should be part of a larger and deeper and fuller knowing and cherishing of the person. In other words, this error is having a too high view of sex, believing that sexual intimacy is more powerful than it actually is. It cannot substitute for the larger project of knowing and loving your wife. Sex cannot be used as a shortcut to relational intimacy. It's a significant part, but not a substitute. So, sexual intimacy is not optional, and sexual intimacy <clears throat> is not, does not automatically lead to relational intimacy. Um, 
Third, sex isn't the reward for doing everything else right. So a second error is having too low a view of sexuality, and that is one, one form of this would treat sexual intimacy as kind of the, the icing on the cake or the cherry on top of a healthy marriage relationship. In other words, if you, if you do everything else well, if you relate well, if you have good conversation, if you serve well, then this is what you can have, sexual intimacy. Friends, that's, that's not the picture that God has in his word either, because the sexual intimacy in our marriages is part of what helps build the relational intimacy. And it should not be conditional based on the performance of other marital responsibilities. This misses the truth that God has ordained sexuality to be a part of the means of drawing a married couple together. Now, I know when I make some of these statements, there are, there are fringe situations which are very, very difficult to understand and parse through how you should help a marriage that's significantly broken. And there, there are ways we can speak to that. I'm not speaking to that right now. What I'm saying is the normal condition of marriage is that sex is not conditional based on how well you do in other areas. It's part of building that relational intimacy as long as, friend, it's part of knowing the other person. Finally, sex is a way to delight to express delight in the other person. We could read Proverbs 5 here. We could read Song of Solomon. Um, I'm not gonna read those right now, but it's a way to express delight in the other person. Remember, this is something that God created for our good, and it is good within marriage. We addressed vulnerability earlier. So it's important to remember that sexual intimacy is a particular area that requires a huge amount of vulnerability, both in its activity, but also in conversation. And for some married couples, discussing sexual intimacy together is almost more vulnerable than the act itself. Uh, when we're doing premarital counseling, we encourage couples, like, talk a lot. Talk a lot about how things are going in your sexual relationship. Verbalize it. Uh, couples can't read each other's minds. And this is true for those of us who've been married a long time. Like you think, oh, that's just good advice for, for newlyweds. But actually, we could be wrong about something in our sexual relationship with our spouse and we have no clue. Like they really don't like this, but I thought they did. Maybe I should ask them. Um, so talking through that can be very helpful. Uh, so... We began by asking, what is a great or God-honoring marriage? God-honoring marriages are marriages in the service of God. In other words, the ultimate goal is not my happiness. The ultimate goal isn't just some earthly thing. It's we are doing this for God's glory. And godly and great marriages picture the relationship and intimacy and love and, and the depth and beauty of God's care for us in how we care for our wives. So what's next? So I hope, you've convinced, I hope to have convinced you that you should be pursuing a deeper marital, relational intimacy with your spouse. But I would like to say if, just a couple of words for those who may be in, in situations where it's just really difficult with your spouse. Maybe it's in a profound, there's some profound dysfunction in your marital relationship. So I just wanna give a few words, gospel words to you. First, Jesus knows 
and offers hope. Jesus offers forgiveness of sins. He offers to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That cleansing from all unrighteousness goes from before marriage to during marriage to perhaps after a failed marriage. God offers forgiveness of sins. Second, your marriage doesn't have to stay where it is right now. Change is possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. Third, you don't have to work through this alone. Um, Some of you might be really helped by talking to a professional counselor or talking to a pastor. And many of us would be helped just by talking to some mature older believers or mature older couple and talk through what we're going through in our marriage so that we can have outside perspective and biblical wisdom. Don't let shame prevent you from pursuing relational intimacy with your spouse. And if there has been a prolonged or significant, um, significant betrayal or a failure in your marriage, please talk to somebody and get help. Don't forget the upcoming book studies. They could be really helpful to us. Um, And don't treat this project as a Lone Ranger project. Like, I've got everything I need to figure out my wife. No, you don't. You're gonna need help. Um, So I've got got three or four questions here. So we're gonna break up into groups and talk about them. Um, You can spend time on these questions. Perhaps you have a better question than what I've given to ask to the guys in your group. But we're gonna gonna break up into groups of, uh, how do you wanna do this, Mike? Five or six guys. Five or six guys, talk through, this, through some of these questions for a minute and then spend some time praying for one another. Maybe the single guys can disperse among the married guys. Okay. All right, single guys, disperse. We'll leave the questions up here for you. Thank you guys for your attention.